John chapter 1 is where we are going to find ourselves this morning, and as our choir makes their way down, I want to encourage you, at, uh, you heard Darden mention about being in prayer for uh, BJ uh, this coming Tuesday as he has his treatment, also be in prayer for Ms. Martha Jenkins as she's about to have knee surgery. Uh, is it this, this week, Ms. Martha, or is it next week? Wednesday, yes, yeah, this Wednesday. And then uh, also be in prayer for Ms. Bonnie Lott as she's going to be having uh, hip, hip replacement surgery on October 1st. And um, <clears throat> both of those will be in Dothan. And so be praying uh, for all of those. And I know a lot of people are, uh, have, have been sick, and so it's just uh, it's getting to be that time of the year. Um, and uh, if you're feeling fluey, please uh, watch the live stream uh, <laughs> and sing loud in your armchair, okay? Um, but uh, but no, I'm, I am glad you're here this morning. I... I uh, I told, I told you I wanted to make a little wager with you. I know some of you don't believe in, in gambling or betting, and I'm, I'm, I'm not wagering your possessions, just your presence, okay? So, uh, uh, but I told you, I said, I said if, I, if I showed you something about the book of Acts, we're, we're going to be there tonight, but if I showed you something about the book of Acts that you didn't know that you had to show up tonight. And so um, I'm going to ask this question, and uh, I, I'd, I would be interested to see if anybody knows the answer. What denomination was the early church in the book of Acts. I see some of you saying none. Anybody? Nothing? They were Baptist, of course. They, they were Baptist. And you say, how in the world can you know that? Is there not, are you like... Reading in between the lines? No, they were Baptists because in Acts chapter 15, they form a committee to see if God's really doing something that he's already started to do. <laughs> Aha, yeah, that was a little self-deprecating uh, denominational humor. Everybody loves those. Uh, so yeah, all of you have to show back up tonight. Um, but no, uh, we, are, we are excited to be able to study through these two incredible books. Probably out of all of the New Testament, the book of John is everybody's favorite gospel. And then the book of Acts is just this fast moving kind of like almost, it feels like this action movie of the early church, you know? And I, in fact, um, if you, uh, if you're able to watch some of the, some of the series that, uh, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey did, uh, a couple years ago called AD, it, it really did capture this kind of awesome, uh, really cool uh, movement of the Spirit and, and God just sweeping these people up and having this uh, movement that started from, uh, from the, the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you've never watched that, I really encourage you to watch that. Uh, but you're going to get a feel for some of that this morning and this evening as we go through the last gospel, the gospel of John, and then the book of Acts uh, tonight. But uh, to start with today, I want to tell you that in the 1500s, that while traveling in Peru, uh, certain individuals noticed all of these little, um, they, they, they guessed that they were irrigation ditches that were dug by the, by the Nazia people. And for hundreds of years, they, they thought that these little ditches um, all led to, to this uh, one central location and nobody really had a, uh, any, any other theory about it until 1939 when this, uh, when this doctor from Long Island University he, 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 he just, he said, you know, I, I bet, I bet we could really get a good picture for how vast and widespread these things are if we could, if we could get in an airplane and fly over them. And it was, uh, it was only then that they looked at this 170 square mile area 
And they noticed that these, these little ditches, they're about four to six inches deep in the Peruvian desert, were not ditches at all. They were actually something called the Nazca Lines. If you've, never, if you've never seen them before, you can go on Google Images or something like that and type in N-A-Z-C-A, Nazca Lines. And it was where these ancient Nazca people, they had drawn all kinds of shapes that are, some of them are over four football fields long, and they're done with incredible precision. Just absolutely, it's one of those things that has all the alien conspiracy theorists like, see, see, you know, that in the pyramids, you know. They, they look at, how could, I mean, in fact, from a surveyor standpoint, I imagine it'd be pretty incredible. Yeah, it was a surveyor that did it, right, Andy? I mean, it was, the, the, they, they have a spider and a whale and a pelican and a human. The human's very, uh, very unflattering, but the, all of the other ones are incredible. I mean, just, just the symmetry of them all is impressive in and of itself. And then you realize how long they are, and they've remained, it's a World Heritage Site now, but they were, remained uh, pretty much in the same, in the same pattern uh, or uh, have been preserved for all of these years. But what if, what if that guy, that doctor in 1939 had never said, well, let me, let me, let me do a flyover, right? Then they would have had the belief that these were irrigation ditches and it would have been unchallenged for hundreds of years. But in reality, a higher vantage point corrected a long-held misconception about what they really were. And that's the exact reason that we're doing the study that we're doing this year. We're doing these flyovers of the books of the Bible with the hopes that if we have any long-held misconceptions about God, about his character, about what he's, really, what he's really going for, what his will really is for our lives, that this unique vantage point and putting all the stories together like we have might correct those, those long-held misconceptions. I think for some of you, maybe that's what this has done, because throughout the entire story, we've seen God's heart for the restoration of his presence throughout all creation, it's not about how we feel. It's not, about, it's, not, it's not even really about what we do for a living. It's not, about, um, it's not about what we drive. It's not about what we own. God's not, like, God doesn't really show a lot of concern for those things. And, and it makes us kind of have to ask the serious question, well, what do I really think God cares about? And that's what this series is meant to answer. God cares about, God cares about his glory being restored to the earth, that sin has corrupted everything and separated everyone from, from him. But his perfect love has channeled his sovereign power to draw near to those who had rebelled against him. And over the last several weeks, we've seen the apex of this work of redemption in the life of Jesus. And in God's plan, the beauty of Jesus' life was, was to be expounded to us in four different corroborating accounts that each describe a contour of our incredible Savior. You see, Matthew tells us about Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Mark tells us about Jesus the Son of God, who, came, who humbled himself to serve us and meet our deepest need for salvation from sin. Luke tells us about Jesus, the Savior, who embraced the outcasts, the sinners, and the prodigals. We saw that last Sunday night. And then each gospel writer, they also craft a narrative to provide a, a unique challenge for their target audience and for us as well. Matthew provides these big blocks of teaching in his gospel to show us that Jesus is the new Moses and that his authoritative teaching is what we should submit our lives to. That's discipleship, submitting our lives to the authoritative teaching of Jesus. 
Then Mark shows us, he calls us to serve as Christ served. That's, that's what, what, what discipleship is in Mark, is to, is to serve as Christ served, sacrificially. And then Luke calls us to follow in Christ's footsteps, even when it comes to breaking social norms, cultural expectations, and our desire for self-preservation. This is discipleship, to take up your cross, an instrument of death and torture and execution, and follow Him. And surely whatever Jesus would be calling us to do in this life is worth the risk. And so today we come to the Gospel of John, which is the favorite gospel of many. Its, its simplicity and its complexity amaze us. And that is because John preached, meditated on these other gospel accounts, and then waited almost 30 years to write his own account, which makes sure to tell us stories not included in others. And these are stories that we desperately need to hear. And it's really cool. Not a lot of people have associated this, even people that I've been listening to, which kind of makes me worry that I'm out like on a limb by myself. But, you know, tonight we're going to study Acts, and the writer of Acts was Luke. And then so Luke wrote his gospel in the book of Acts to be companion pieces, right? Little mini-series. Well, we know that John wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but then he also wrote what? Revelation, right? The Revelation. And so whereas Luke is going to show us tonight, this is Jesus' finished work of atonement, but then Jesus is going to continue the work of his mission through his disciples, continuing on. I think John shows us this is what Jesus did while he was on this earth, and this same Jesus is going to come again one day, and it's kind of a companion piece as well, right? Because John wants you to do what? He wants you to believe. He wants you to believe to the point of transformation, like real, authentic belief. Not just lip service belief, but real belief. Real belief that changes your life. That's what John is after. And if you don't believe, <laughs> Revelation is a testimony of what's coming. And surely you would want to trust Jesus. Surely you would want to be with Him and follow Him so that when that comes, whatever, whatever, whatever that is, the end times, whatever, whatever view you hold to that, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have a defined eschatology. I just know that Jesus is coming back and I know what He's called for me to do right now. So I'm really interested in like the, the Sunday before Christmas when we're, when we're diving into the book of Revelation. That's going to be a fun study. I'm really looking forward to that. But, but today... We're going to look at what John said about Jesus and his life on this earth because Jesus is the God of the world. And so John's focus, as we mentioned, John wrote around 90 AD, and he was the last surviving apostle who had meditated upon the message of Jesus for years and years. I think he'd preached it often, preached it hundreds of times, and before his death, he sits down to craft this in incredible testimony with a, with a very intentional design. And you remember, one of the common components between Matthew and Luke was they had this genealogy, right? But the genealogy both fits to serve, it serves their purposes. They're not conflicting, but Matthew traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham to show that he's the Jewish Messiah. Luke traces Jesus all the way back to the first man, Adam, to show that he is the Savior of all men, the Savior of all men and women, all people, all, all nations, because he traces him back to Adam. Well, John doesn't have a genealogy like the others, but he does have a kind of origin story about Jesus in John chapter 1. And John basically pursues it a different way. 
And he tells us a few things about who Jesus is from the very beginning. He wants, us to, wants to make it very clear. And it reflects back on Genesis chapter 1, right? Many of you could quote for me Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, how does John start? What are the first three words of John chapter 1? In the beginning. So John wants you, when you read these words, he wants you to be like, okay, okay, so Jesus is not just some human that was born and he's a good teacher. From the very beginning, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he's not identifying Jesus just yet. He's calling Jesus by this, by this name of the word. But what he's saying is, is that the word was with God and that he was distinct from God but that the word was God and that he was one with God, right? So, so he's already providing layers and layers of complexity that theologians for years and years and years and years and years have talked about. And uh, I, I want to let you know, this is the right translation. If you ever have Jehovah's Witnesses knocking your door, doors, they'll take you to this verse. And they'll, they'll say, it'll say, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God, right? That's a bad translation of that. This is the right translation. The word was God. And John, as a monotheistic Jew who became a Christian, would not want any confusion if he didn't really believe that Jesus was God, he wouldn't have he wouldn't even got close to this. So John believed it and he wrote it. And so did the other gospel writers, and so did the rest of the New Testament, but for some reason the Jehovah's Witnesses have trouble uh, reconciling that because they got an agenda. So but all that to say, in Matthew's genealogy though, uh, well, let me, let me go back. Jesus is with God and Jesus is God. That's what we see in verses uh, one and two. But then he says that Jesus was the, was the one through whom everything was created. Look at verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Pretty clear, right? Jesus made everything. He was the word. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter one, one. And then what are the next three words? If, if you remember it from Genesis chapter one, verse two, and God said, God spoke, and when God spoke, creation happened. So him speaking is Jesus. John wants us to make that connection. Everything that is made was made through him. And then Jesus is this light that's sent by God to overcome our darkness. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Nowhere in these first 18 verses has, has John called Jesus by his name, Jesus. It's this poem about the Word, and then the rest of chapter 1 is meant to show us that this Word that John is talking about, that John the Baptist, another John, testified to, is Jesus the one and only. And he begins that in verse 19. And what he does is he draws us to these seven different titles of Jesus. Now, we talked about in Matthew's genealogy, we talked about the Jewish uh, kind of the, the, perspe the perspective on the number seven. And we talked about, you know, um, I, 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 it, just to refresh you, I alluded, I just got back from Vietnam. We started Matthew, and while I was going to, to Vietnam, my wife, as incredible as she is, she cleaned my office, like all my piles. She got rid of those. I don't know where anything is now, but that's okay because it looks really good because that's in her wheelhouse. She is an organizer. 
She, 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 she sees mess and she creates organization, like perfect companion to me, right? I'm, I'm the opposite, right? And so anyway, when, when, when I came in, uh, or when she came in the following Sunday morning, I like placed something on the counter and it was not in its right place, right? And she was like, what's that? Because she immediately noticed. It was like red flag. It could have, I mean, it could have been screaming. And, and, and that was almost, almost what it was like when I walked in there or when she walked in there, was like, that's not where it's supposed to be, right? And not in a bad way, right? But, but just saying, hey, I worked hard on this. Well, that same kind of, of, of just subconscious alarm would go off in the mind of a Jew when they would see six of something. And they would immediately begin anticipating the seventh. And why? It all goes back, once again, to Genesis chapter 1. Because how many days did God create the earth in? Don't say seven. It's six, right? Yeah, he created it. But on the seventh day, he rested. And the fact that God rested defined everything for them. Because what it meant was it was complete. And he was looking at it, and it was very good. And he enjoyed it. It was beautiful. He took pleasure in it, right? And so for the Jewish mindset, this was reaffirmed in the Ten Commandments, right? Sabbath day, keep it holy. Uh, it was reaffirmed in a number of ways. So the number seven always had a prominent place in the Jewish mindset. And so how many titles, some of you accounted them on the screen, if you can, you can see them. Uh, so, uh, the, how many titles are there of Jesus on that screen? Seven. You can almost say it without looking at it, right? Why does John do this? Because he wants us to immediately see Jesus is that perfection from God who has come. And all of these people are saying these things about him and all of them are true. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He's the Rabbi. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messianic King and Teacher who is the Son of God that will die for the sins of the world. And this is John's purpose for writing. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, but these are written, these things, all of John's gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So two purposes for which John writes, that you would believe and that by believing you would find what? Life. Life. Not mediocre paltry kind of broken life like we live right now but john 10 10 says what life more abundantly than you could ever imagine so is this worth studying absolutely and we're not going to go verse by verse like we have through this first chapter through the rest of the book because you're thinking we're going to be here till three o'clock um and so john that's john's focus but you get it now so let's go into john's message of good news we'll take a big chunk right now over the next 11 chapters john uh, chapters ch chapters 2 through 12 the pattern's pretty simple jesus performs a sign and that makes everybody angry or confused they're like i don't get this or you shouldn't be doing that there's all there's these responses to jesus right some people are some people are positive about it, but then everybody else, Jesus does this sign, and they're confused, perplexed, or they're angry about it, especially the Jewish leaders. And the first sign, you're very well aware of it, turn to John chapter 2, verse 11, um, is this turning the water into Welch's grape juice, because we're Baptists, right? No, it wasn't. It was wine. And not only was it wine, it was the best wine, right? It was the best wine. So John chapter 2, verse 11, you know the story, right? Jesus uh, is at this wedding. They were running out of wine. 
His mom says, will you help him out? Jesus makes wine, like 120 gallons of wine, right? But look at verse 11, and it says, John is kind of giving his footnote on this account. This is the first of his what? Signs. Underline that word in John. This is the first one of his signs. This is an important thing for John. A sign is an act that reveals something about Jesus or about God's kingdom. Think of it as a fork in the road for John. Remember what's John's purpose? That you would believe and that by believing you would find life? Well, he's saying, here's a sign for you to believe. Here's a fork in the road. Make your decision, people. Either Jesus is God or he's not. That's John's whole purpose in writing. If you believe he's God, you're going to find life. And so this is his first sign. And from there, John chapter 3 and 4, Jesus has these two landmark conversations. And I really, I really want you to see this design in it, right? Because this is crucial. This is why John put it this way. John chapter 3, Jesus and who? We all know this conversation that Jesus had. Who was it? Nicodemus, right? Nick at night, right? Because he came, uh, he came to Jesus by night. He's a Jewish rabbi. He comes to Jesus. Uh, John 3.16, the most famous verse in all of human history, right, in this chapter. But what's important about this, don't miss, don't miss the forest for the trees. What's important about this is, is that Nicodemus seeks Jesus out in this conversation, which is why, which is why John put it here. And Nicodemus leaves perplexed. Once again, like we said, Jesus having these conversations, he says, listen, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. That's right. You must be born again. This perplexes Nicodemus. How does a man enter into a womb for the second time? And he's just mind blown, right? But then look at what happens in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus learned that the Pharisees are mad. And so verse 3, he leaves Judea. And verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Do you know what the actual Greek translation of this is? Is that he was driven. He was compelled. He knew this was the will of his father. The Spirit was saying, Go to Samaria. I've got another conversation for you, Jesus. And so Nicodemus seeks Jesus out by night, leaves perplexed. Jesus in John chapter 4 seeks this woman out. And whereas chapter 3, you have this respected teacher over all of Israel, what do you have in chapter 4? You have an outcast woman. Nobody wants to be around her. If you only knew the kind of person that she really was, not the Sunday school, vacation, Bible school person, that you would be shocked Jesus is talking to her as well. That Jesus going through Samaria is like finding Jesus in a bar on Bourbon Street. Like, like just, just I, in fact, I had a pastor one time back in Huntsville, and this was their ministry. They would go to Bourbon Street in Mardi Gras, and they'd hold up signs that had like, you know, frog, fully rely on God, and golf. There was golf with some kind of acronym. And they'd all use it as conversation starters. Remember, this was the early 90s. Things were a lot different back then. Uh, Bourbon Street was the same, but things were a lot different back then. You could you'd actually start conversations instead of getting beat up. But all that to say, I, w- I was thinking to myself, I, and there were a lot of people in that church who were like, why would you go there? Why would you, why would you do that, right? And everybody who's reading the Gospel of John, they get to John chapter 4, and they see Jesus being compelled to go to Samaria, and they're like, why would you do that? Do you not know what kind of people are there? 
Do you not know what you're going to see? Don't take your kids there. My goodness. I mean, that, that's the kind of emotion that they would feel. And yet, Jesus in John chapter 3 has this conversation with Nicodemus. Blows his mind. He leaves perplexed. Jesus in John chapter 4, he seeks this woman out. And he invites her into a relationship to worship God authentically. And then he blows her mind too, but what happens? She doesn't leave perplexed. What happens? She leaves and she becomes an evangelist. This woman leaves and she says, y'all got to come see this guy over here. Different responses. Why, why would John do this? It's because he wants to assault the pride that is inherent with our religious sensibilities. We think we're doing so good. We think we are doing so good to show up at church on a Sunday morning to hear from Jesus, right? Honor me, God, I'm here. And Jesus says, that's not really what it's about, y'all. It's not really what it's about. I, I didn't come for the, for the people who think that they're healthy. What did I come for? I came for the sick. I came for the people who are broken. That's what John's trying to tell us in John chapter 4, which is great news this morning if what? If you're broken. Just like Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who recognize, like Darden prayed, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. If that's you this morning, then Jesus says, come close. But if you're resting on your religious laurels this morning, then Jesus wants to blow your mind so that you'll figure out that you don't have it all figured out. That's the purpose of John chapter 3 and chapter 4, some of the most well-known chapters in all of John's gospel and maybe even all of the New Testament. But from chapters 5 to 10, just look at it. Chapter 5, look at your subheading there. The healing at the pool on the Sabbath, one Jewish institution. Now look at uh, chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. It's the feeding of the 5,000, and it says, Now at the what? The feast of the what? Passover, right? Second Jewish institution, all right? All right, next one. Next one, chapter 7. Reading your subheading there, or in verse 2. The Jews are celebrating the feast of what? Booths or tabernacles, right? All right, we're, we're moving on through. All right, look at, finally, G, uh, John chapter 10. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. John chapter, uh, John chapter ten. At this time, uh, verse twenty-two. At this time, the feast of what? Dedication. So, four Jewish institutions. And here's the quick. Here's the here's the flyer review. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? He's going to the Jews, and he's entering into these four festivals that he'd grown up with. These four feasts. These four really important symbols. And you know what he's saying in every one of them. He's saying, they all point to me. They all point to me. If you, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, uh, the feast of Dedication, which is, which is actually known as Hanukkah, celebrated something that happened during the Apocryphal period, right? And you have all of these, the Sabbath, all of these things that were important to Jews. He's saying, that it's all about me. You guys need to recognize that all of these things are about me. But then John chapter 11, you're set up for one of the greatest miracles in the entire Gospel of John up to this point. Another sign for us. John chapter 10, John chapter, I mean, uh, John chapter 11 verse, uh, and chapter 12. Look at, look at chapter 10, verse 30. I know, I know we're going all over the place, but there's several key verses to get here. 
John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says this. These, these simple words that had a mountain of significance for Jews. I and the Father are what? Are one. And then look at the next verse, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to kill this guy. This guy is blaspheming. He, I mean, like we don't, we don't get the emotion that comes with that. But for him to say, I am the Father of one, he's saying, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. I'm God with you. I am, I'm here in the flesh to save you. And they're saying, no, you're not. You need to die. And so Jesus goes away. Verse 40 says he went away across the Jordan. All right? But then, chapter 11, there was a certain man that was ill. This was a, a man that Jesus loved very much. A man and his two sisters, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It says that in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her sister, uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then when they heard Lazarus was ill, he immediately left and went to him. Does your Bible say that? What does it say? He stayed where he was for how long? What? Okay, wait. John, that must be like a typo. The autocorrect didn't kick in on that one. He heard Lazarus was ill, so he stayed there for two days. Now, remember, the Jews are seeking to kill him. And he's gone away because he doesn't feel like it's his time yet. And he gets this word that, hey, your best friend is sick. And Jesus waits. He waits. He doesn't show up when Mary and Martha think he should show up. Let that encourage you in, in your life right now. If God hasn't shown up yet, just wait for it, okay? Just wait for it. Mary and Martha think he should have been a lot earlier, but Jesus was right on time. Because you know what he was doing? You don't get this from the text, but the Jews believed that when a person died, which we know Lazarus does go on to die, the Jews believed that when a person died, that their spirit hovered, hovered above their body for, anybody know it? Three days, right? Their spirit hovered above their body for three days and then left. And so Jesus says, essentially, oh, this is going to be good. We're going to make sure he's really dead. I mean, that, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing. His, his disciples, Mary and Martha, are like, hey, uh, your best friend's over here dying. Aren't you, aren't you packing your bag to leave? We got to go. Jesus, he's dying. I'm sure by the second day, they're like, oh, you ready to leave now? You know, I mean, it's kind of, there's just, it's perplexing. Why would you do this, Jesus? Because Jesus was listening to the Spirit. Spirit was filling Jesus. The Spirit was showing Jesus what to do. And the Spirit said, wait, wait. And so Jesus waits two more days. He gets there. He is really dead, right? Really, really dead. And Jesus shows up. And you know the rest of the story. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then the result is, is that the news spreads like wildfire. The news spreads like wildfire. And it results in Jesus and the triumphal entry in chapter 12, verse 12. Jesus knows that his time has come. It's almost Passover again. He's, about to, he's going to Jerusalem, and he's about to celebrate his last Passover with his disciples. Now, here's the key. We've done 12 chapters so far, which is right at a little over half the book of John. The next three chapters focus on one night. 
So obviously it's important. And this is kind of one of those that I'm marking down. Like I'd love to go back and preach just through this, all the things that Jesus said to his disciples, because this is really good stuff. And so he says all of these things in John chapter 13, 14, I mean, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, so four chapters, to his disciples. And he, he, he shocks them by reminding them, I'm behind on my slide, sorry. He shocks them by reminding them that he's going to go away. But he tells them that that's better. It's better that he would go away. Because if he goes away, then the Father is going to send a helper. He's a, he's a counselor. He's a comforter. He's an advocate. And if they abide in him, John chapter 15, then the Spirit will transform them and empower them to carry on his mission to the world. And even though they encounter opposition and persecution, they should not fear because he has already gained victory over evil. He makes that statement. He makes that statement. At the end of chapter 17, he has overcome the world. And he knows he's going back to the Father. And so Jesus says, I'm victorious. And Jesus wants to define victory for us in the next chapters. And so look at John chapter 18. Specifically, verse 5 and 6. So Jesus had spoken his last words to his disciples. He went out with his disciples across the book to Kidron, across the, the, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas betrayed him. He shows up with some officers. And look at verse, look at chap, I mean, uh, verse 5 of chapter 18. Jesus had said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. John's the only one who reports what's next. So this is like one of those things to put an asterisk by in your, in your Bible. Judas betrayed him. I mean, I'm sorry. Jesus said, uh, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, go back to verse 5. I'm getting mixed up here. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't know why Matthew, Mark, and Luke decided to leave that part out. Maybe they just didn't remember it. Uh, but John is the one that reports, and I'm so glad he did. Because what is victory? What is the ultimate victory that, that we'll talk about tonight as we end the book of Acts? The victory is what's shown in Philippians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 4 and 7 when every tribe and tongue and nation do what? They bow the knee to Jesus and say that he is Lord. And Jesus has given us a little foretaste of that when all of these big bad soldiers come to get him and with three little words, they drop to their knees. Jesus is God. Jesus has the victory. And he wants to show us the pathway to victory through his death on the cross. You see... These words are the culmination of two sets of seven instances, remember about sevens, right? Where Jesus says, I am, which was the name of God revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. You see, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has said, I am seven times by itself. It's the ones on the right. And then he said, seven other, said I am seven other times where he's combined I am with another clarifying title. I am the bread of life in John 6.35. At the, uh, at the Feast of, of, uh, of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world, John eight twelve at Hanukkah. 
I am the narrow gate, John chapter 10, verse 7. I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life after he raised Lazarus in eleven twenty-five. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14, verse 6 to Thomas when he's scared to death that Jesus is about to go. And then I am the true vine in John chapter 15, verse 1. So when Jesus at his arrest reveals this divine name at which every knee bows, he is showing us what is about to happen. He's giving us hope that even in the midst of death and when things don't look like they're going the right way, that God is still sovereign. He's still in control. And then he's nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he has seven sayings once again. And he dies and is put in a tomb. But remember that wedding feast at Cana? It was the first what? First sign? Seven I am sayings. Seven occurrences of I am, and you guessed it, we have only had six signs throughout John's gospel. Water into wine, chapter 2, the healing of the sick boy, chapter 4, healing a paralyzed man, chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, healing the blind man, chapter 9, raising Lazarus, chapter 11, and all of the Jews reading the book are like, there's only six. Where's the seventh one? Where's the seventh one? Where's the seventh one? And John says, I've got the seventh one for you because Jesus rises again. He is risen. That is the seventh and most complete and most perfect and most wonderful and most awesome sign that gives you a fork in the road to say, if you want to follow Jesus, then believe. Believe that he is alive to this day, sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for you even now. Don't treat him like he's an add-on belief in your life. Treat him as one of the controlling factors of your life because there's no other Savior that is risen from the grave. Believe in him. Believe that he holds life and death in his hands. That's the, that's, the, that's the tension that we feel as we get to the end of the book of John, that there's these six signs, but the seventh one, the resurrection, is the most awesome sign that could ever exist. And it's one of those signs that if it's true, and we'll see that it absolutely is tonight as we see how it shaped the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts, when we see that it's true, it changes everything about our life. So John chapter 21, Jesus appears one more time to his disciples, to seven of them. And it's really interesting. Why would John put this story? I mean, why not end with the climax of the resurrection, right? But John puts this one more story in here for a specific purpose. You see, a number of disciples who were fishermen, right, before they go back fishing, they fish all night. They don't catch anything. And then a man stands on the shore. It's Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus yet. A man stands on the shore and calls out to him and says, Put your nets on the other side of the boat. And they're like, Hey, we've been fishing all night. We do this for a living. We know what we're doing. It's, it's futile. They're not biting today, or they're not jumping on our net today. And Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, says, Just trust me. So what do they do? They obey, put their nets to the other side, of the other side of the boat, and they haul in more fish than they can even contain. Why would John include this at the very end of his gospel? Right before this story about Jesus and Peter, and, and then Jesus and John, the one who wrote the gospel of John. It's because like in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, or John wants Jesus himself to define discipleship for us. 
You see, Jesus' followers are most effective. They're, they're the most faithful disciples that they can be, not when they're focused on their work as an end in itself, but when they listen to the voice of Jesus and obey his word. See, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. And you've been gifted and you've been called. And yeah, you've got to work every day. And yeah, you do your calling. But please don't fall prey to the, the American misconception that that's all there is to life. You are not your job. You, you, you've been called and gifted for a purpose. And that purpose is to do what? To testify from the very core of who you are that Jesus is alive. And as you really believe that, it transforms your life and people see it in you. They see it. And if you want proof of that, you'll be back tonight for the book of Acts. Because it's more testimony about how when Jesus has truly transformed you, people not only see it, but they say, I want what you've got. Because right now I'm broken, I have no peace, I can't sleep, I'm anxious, I need to know what God wants for me and what God wants for you and every single person that you've ever met in your entire life begins with Jesus. And it's time for us, it's time for us to believe that in a way that transforms us. It's time for us to let that be the fuel that drives us to serve because the beauty of John's gospel is that the one who told us what victory is, the one who conquered death, he let death conquer him. So running radically, risking yourself, running radically towards the brokenness of other people, serving other people sacrificially, diving into the messiness of their lives, because you know that what Jesus has given you, no one else can take away. That is what true Christianity looks like, folks. Which is one of the reasons that kind of disturbs me that we're predominantly a monochromatic congregation here this morning. Why can't God do a work in Abbeville and bring white people and black people together on a Sunday morning? Do we really not believe that God could do something like that? Is he the savior of white people only or is he the savior of the world? When's the last time you shared the gospel with a black person or a Hispanic person? May God, may God break our hearts with the reality of who he died on the cross for. Because Jesus wasn't white and if we think he only died for people of his own race, then we are sorely mistaken. Because that would mean he didn't die for us. But we know that's not true. We know that's not true. Why? Because you've tasted and you've seen that he is good. You've tasted and seen that he's real and that he's alive and he's at work in us today. And I guarantee if you went down the street, the church that meet, meets right beside Rite Aid and they'll still be meeting at two o'clock this afternoon if you want to go join them, he's alive and well there too. It's not all about us. And until we see that, until we get a heart for beyond these walls, We're selling ourselves short. And so I would just challenge you. What does that look like for your life? Because there is no such thing as casual Christianity in the Gospels. We haven't seen it. We're not going to see it from the book of Acts. We're not going to see it in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus isn't concerned about our stuff. Jesus isn't concerned about our homes. Jesus isn't concerned about our bank accounts. 
Jesus is concerned with the glory of his Father spreading to all peoples. And if we aren't, then we're not following Jesus. That's not in the notes. And so all I can imagine is that the Spirit of God is calling us as a collective, as a, as a people, as a body, to see something. To see something. And so what have you seen this morning? That's what you need to respond to. I can't define it for you. I wish I could. I wish I could sit down with every single one of you and tell you exactly what God's trying to say to you. But it's not, that, that's not on me. That's on you. And if you're truly a believer and God's put his spirit inside of you, then I would just tell you to obey. Obey. Because as we saw last week, obedience brings life. Brings life. And that's why Jesus came. So let's pray together.